You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. Our New Testament reading is from the book of Romans, Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more... Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. Our Old Testament reading and sermon text this morning is from Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah 8, verses 9 through 18. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, And the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength." So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. On the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it all to, in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out into the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went out and brought, brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof, and in their courts, and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square at the water gate, and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths and lived in booths, for, for from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. 
Uh, my name is Justin Riley. I'm one of the parish elders here at Trinity Church Denver. Uh, this is not my normal space on a Sunday morning. Normally, Brian Brown, our ministering elder, is up here. Um, and it is a distinct um, gift and pleasure for me to, uh, be asked, to be asked to preach to you all this morning. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your kindness and goodness to us as a people. God, we thank you that you've, uh, that you've not left us to our own devices, but God, that you instruct us by your word. God, that you've given us your word that we, can, that, that we may see it, read it, behold it, uh, love it, and walk in obedience to it. And so God, I pray that you would do that work in us this morning, God, that, that you would uh, open our eyes to reveal the truth that's, that's contained in, the, in these words of yours. Um, and God, help us to help our hearts to long to be obedient and walk in, according, in accordance with it. So God, thanks for this time. May it all be for your glory. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we, uh, we kind of dig into this, I want you to start by uh, thinking through, thinking back, uh, and take just a moment to recall like two or three of the most memorable celebrations of your life. So it could be uh, a wedding, could be a, a milestone birthday. We've had uh, a number of those in our community uh, relatively recently. Maybe it's a, maybe a holiday, a retirement party, maybe even a, a funeral. Uh, uh, some point where there was a, a celebration that, that just stands out in your mind. Um, and I'd be willing to bet that there was food involved. And, and if there's food, that means there was a table. If there's a table, just like an altar is a table, and we'll, we'll talk more about this, but all of that is really not accidental. It's intended to help you to remember. And if it really is one of the memories that you just pulled out of the recesses of your mind, then apparently it worked. So you, you may not remember what you had for lunch two Tuesdays ago. I for sure don't. Um, but you may well remember what you ate on your first date with your spouse. You see, uh, we are called to feast. That's what today's uh, sermon is going to be about. That's what this text and what Ezra is calling the people of God to is exactly that. It is, these are instructions in what it looks like to take joy, to feast, and to remember. So, a quick bit of context as we, as we survey the last, uh, I don't know, eight chapters or so, seven and a half chapters of uh, Nehemiah, where we've been, like God has called Nehemiah as, as sort of the, uh, the principal leader to help rebuild the wall in the reconstruction and bringing of God's people back together. And they did that against some, some pretty significant opposition. So now... We're at a point where the people and worship have been restored. The people have been brought out of exile. The word of the Lord, the law of Moses is being taught. Um, it's being read and it's being taught. So we had, I don't know who did the scripture reading last week. Glad it wasn't me. Those are a lot of, there's just a lot of consonants happening in those names. But like all of these, all of these uh, folks who are, who have been called and tasked to actually, uh, to act, sort of excise what is uh, exegete, what's from, you know, what is the word, what is this law, and how does it apply? And so there's the law being read, there's this instruction happening, and now we're at this point where uh, Ezra, is, uh, Ezra has come together and he's teaching the people and he says to them, stop weeping. So what we're going to do, uh, and, and so he talks about like, 
stop weeping, don't be grieved, take joy. The joy of the Lord is, its strength, is our strength. And then he calls them to set this day apart for it to be holy and instructs them in how to celebrate and how to feast. So that's just like the, the quick sort of overview. I want to uh, walk through a few observations from this text and then we'll talk about some instructions, some what does this, how does this call us to live differently? So first, the first observation is that sin is made alive through the law and the understanding of it. So, uh, Brian, if you were here last week or if you listened to last week's sermon, Brian did a really great job, in my opinion, of sort of pointing out what this looks like for us to, to be commanded to do something, right? For, for us to be faced with an objective truth and a set of expectations uh, that we didn't come up with, that, the, that these things, uh, these instructions are imposed upon us. And so this is what's occurring with the people of God here. The law has been read, it's been taught um, through the charge of Ezra, and, that, and, and so that the people of God would be instructed in, uh, according to the law of God. So the people of God are given the law, and the law, as Paul refers to it, uh, when Paul talks to us about the law, brings sin to life, like a ruler, right? Uh, Not like crown and scepter ruler, like numbers on a stick ruler, right? It gives us a standard by which to measure uh, where we are. So like when you're walking out the door, maybe you don't walk out the door of 7-Eleven very often, but when you walk out the door of 7-Eleven, there's like heights marked on the inside of the door so that if you're that guy that they need to get later, they know exactly how tall you are. But you walk, not being that guy or that lady, uh, you walk by that, you probably never notice it, but you walk by it, you see, wow, I'm not 6'7". I'm, I don't measure up to that. But just like that gives you this visual like, okay, here's where I am in accordance to a standard. The law does that. It brings our sin to life. And the response, as you can see, as we see here uh, from the people of God, Ezra is, uh, like again, they've been read, they, they've had the law read over them, they've been instructed in it. And Ezra says to them, I'm in verse 9, verse 9, this, is, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Now this, there is a good um, and right response in this, in, in weeping, when you hear and recognize from the word of God, there's, that there's a recognition of the separation from God. So the, the, there's a total and complete otherness of God uh, as a holy God apart from us and we as his creation, that we do not measure up to him. We are not like him and and we are in fact uh, have been at enmity with him because he has set a standard and we have failed to meet it so there is a good and right response to hearing this law of god as the spirit uses that truth to impress upon us that we have lived at enmity with him and and so god's word is uh, you could think of it as a, a, a stone if you had a rock let's see you had a, a rock the size of a baseball and then you had this is where this Mike's killing me. If you had a, a, a ball of Play-Doh the size of a baseball and you had a stone that was the size of the baseball, and the stone has all these like, you know, nuances, these little cracks and crevices, dents and indentations, and then you've got the Play-Doh, and these two things collide, they're pressed into one another, which one is going to take the shape of the other? 
God's law, God who he is, does not change. He's everlasting. We are his creation and quite pliable sometimes. Uh, but when these two things are forced together, we realize in, in the, that sometimes painful shaping that we are being conformed, not the other way around. So, in that, when we, when we are met with the reality, and guys, this is the truth, this is the heart of the gospel, that uh, when we recognize that God has called us to a standard, he's called us to live in, in such a way that glorifies and honors him, and when we meet the reality that we have not lived up to that standard, and the consequence is eternal separation from our creator, like there is a despair in that. There, there ought to be weeping in that. That's exactly where the people of God are when Ezra steps in front of them and he says to them, stop weeping. Uh, do not be grieved and make this day holy unto the Lord. And there's a reason for that. So there's, the, the, there's a recognition by the people that they've been weighed and measured and found wanting. And then we see this second observation, which is that joy comes from communion with God. So there's been this restoration, now there's this teaching, uh, and there's a recognition that I'm separated from God, and Ezra is reminding them, no, there is, you, this restoration includes a communion with God that you've not had. So as the people stand before Ezra in this condition, he instructs them how they ought to respond. And he says to them, mark the day, right? Set it apart as holy, and rejoice at renewed relationship with God. Worship has been restored. The very words of God are being proclaimed, heard, adored, and understood. And the restoration of worship is communion with God. God who is righteous and holy, who's right to demand things of us as his people. And he's brought them to himself and now commands them to take joy and feast. The third, uh, the, the third observation. So one, uh, sin is made alive by the law. There's joy that comes from communion with God when there is restoration. So uh, we, have to, we have to recognize that the instruction even to us, and we'll get to, these are observations. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to smash these together a little bit uh, and just repeat them. So I, I don't want you to leave without hearing this. Like the, the call to us is to be joyful. Right? It's to recognize the depths of our sin and, and the draw away from God, the separation from God, and then the incredible, overwhelming uh, magnitude of his rescue of us in restoration of fellowship with him. That's first two observations. The third observation is that feasts help us to remember. This actually, there's a, there was a, I'm just going to share this story with you. There was, I was reminded this week, we were, uh, I was in Washington, D.C. last weekend uh, with a group of, my, well, my older son and a group of students from his school and a couple of other folks in this room. We're wandering through, uh, I say wandering, we marched 45 miles over four days around Washington, D.C., and it was delightful. I don't have any blisters. Uh, thanks be to God. But we were marching around Washington, D.C., taking in all these sites. And there, there are countless reminders. And there are memorials all around D.C., right? Now, we were walking down the, the National Mall. And it turns out last Monday and Tuesday were like agriculture days in the Capitol, which 
probably for most people were like, what is all this farm equipment doing on the National Mall? I was for sure like, oh my gosh, guys, there's farm equipment on the National Mall. I grew up on a farm and ranch in Northeast Colorado. Some of the, that didn't play very well for some of you who don't know me. But I, I love combines, right? Like I love big, just massive farm equipment. I love it, all of it. And so we're wandering around looking at all these stone structures, wandering through museums. It's all very cool. It's great. Kids are great. And then we stumble upon this farm equipment, and I'm, like, enamored. There's, there's a combine sitting in the middle of the National Mall, and what do I do? I have to Google it on my phone and figure out how much this thing costs, because I've never seen a combine like this in my life. Uh, so uh, Steve Chacon and I are going back and forth. He knows a couple of things about some farm equipment. and all. Anyway, we had this moment, and it was delightful. And it reminded me of... Uh, when uh, combine season for us here in Colorado, when we were combining corn in the fall, there was a, uh, I, so I, the, the farm and ranch that I grew up on was fairly small. Uh, we didn't have the money to afford our own combine because they are, in fact, this one we figured out was around 800 grand and they weren't that much cheaper uh, when, when I was young. And so we didn't have our own combine, but we had um, another gentleman who was a farmer who had a, a quite a bit larger operation uh, a few miles down the road from us, his name was Delmer Walters, which means nothing to you, but I needed to remember that for myself. Um, and, and Delmer was, uh, he was just one of the most kind-hearted men I've ever met in my life. But my dad contracted with him uh, for him to combine our corn. And so every fall, you know, he would have a couple of combines show up, big trucks, and we'd take in this harvest. And this was like the pinnacle of the year for uh, in agrarian culture, right? When you bring in a harvest and you see and you like send off to the grain or to the elevator all of this grain that you've worked uh, hard to cultivate and grow over the season, this is when you find out sort of what your payday is. This is a, a great time of rejoicing uh, in that life. And so, what would happen is every year, Delmer would actually host this um, this big dinner. At a, at a relatively local restaurant. And uh, he would invite our, our family and a number of other families who were, who'd sort of worked with him and who he had done work with. And it was this giant celebration every fall. And like the, the, uh, the clarity of even those memories now helps underscore, at, at least for me, and hopefully this makes some sense to you as you maybe know or uh, care little to nothing about combines. But helps to underscore that, man, like we, we are called to feast to remember. We'll talk more about that. But this third observation is that feasting helps us to remember. So if we look in verses 13 to 18, we see that the people of God are, are doing what God's called them to, which is they are studying, they're hearing the word of God, they're studying, studying it together. And, and what we see is these heads of households representing all of the people. They join with the priests and, and they come to Ezra and they find out what God has commanded them to do. And it turns out they're reading in the book of the law from Moses that they, they were commanded, their people were commanded to celebrate this feast of tabernacles or feast of booths. And what was their response? They did it. They read the law they learned what it meant and they applied it to their lives and they did it with joy. So they read what Moses had recorded. Leviticus 23 actually talks through this. It's this week-long feast of commemorative rejoicing and God directs them to live in tents during this feast in order 
uh, and this is Leviticus 23, 43, in order that your generations may know that I, God, made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So this feast occurs during the fall in the seventh month after the crops had been harvested. Therefore, an abundance of party supplies were on hand. And the, the intent is for God's people to remember again and again and again God's faithfulness in bringing them out of exile and caring for them, his providence. God, it's, it's intended for his people to remember his holiness, God's holiness, his faithful, his providence, his generosity. God knows we're feeble-minded and have short memories. We forget easily, and so he establishes and instructs us in actual physical exercises, actions for us to take that help us to remember. That help us to remember what he is like. Brian, uh, Brian's fond of a couple of things, and he, he threw both of these into his sermon last week. One is his disdain for steamed broccoli. Uh, and the other is this phrase that what must he be like? He, he called us, Brian called us last week in his sermon to, when we take up this text, when we read the very words of God, the very first thing that we ought to ask is, what must this God be like that he commands his people to feast, to take joy, to remember? Feasting helps us to remember what he's like, um, how our beliefs and thinking are to be shaped, and how we ought to live in light of all of it. So there are three, uh, three sets of instructions, if you will, from this text that I want to, to walk through with you. Um, the first, well, first, be reminded that this instruction is embedded in, in kind of this larger framework of, of worship, of acknowledgement and atonement of sin, and a constant instruction in the word of the Lord. And so that's what we've seen kind of in, this, in, in the previous texts in chapters 7 and 8. And so that we come to the first instruction, which is learn how to feast. I love when, when the Bible gets really practical. With us, this is not super abstract. Uh, but, but we need to learn how to feast, to feast to remember. Okay, there's, there's two types of feasting, if you will. Feast to remember and feast to be reminded. So feast to remember, here's a thing that you should do. When you, if you're going to have a wedding, and there are a couple of a uh, couple of you in this room who are going to have a wedding relatively soon, you plan a feast to remember. We, as a body, feast at this table every week to remember. So feast to remember and feast to be reminded. So instruction one is learn how to feast. So if we walk through this, he tells them. A couple of pretty specific, Ezra tells them some, some pretty specific things here. In verse 10, he said to them, go your way. Go your way, eat the fat and drink the sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And then do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. He says to them, go your way. So not only together, gathered as the people of God, though that is an instruction to us, right? When we are gathered as the people of God, we are to feast. You may, if you've been around Trinity for any amount of time, you may have picked up on the fact that we don't really do anything without there being something to put in your belly. Okay? It could be a bagel. That's what we have today. It could be popsicles, which we do in the summer. 
every time we have a member meeting, uh, there's a there's a uh, a chili factory that happens at the Riley House where we make 15 gallons of chili at a time. It's fantastic. It might or may not be award winning. It is. We eat every time we gather because there there's this is the this is the command. We feast to remember and we feast to be reminded. So, should we feast when we gather? Yes. Uh, do we only feast when we're gathered together together as a church? No. So he's saying to them, go your way. Like, leave this assembly, go about your life, and, and make this day holy, and go eat the fat and drink the sweet wine. Now, kids, if you're like me when I was a kid, you're hearing the word of God tell you to eat the fat, and, and maybe, maybe there are grown-ups in this room who are really questioning if they can be obedient to this, right? Do I really have to eat the fat? Listen, enjoy the gifts of God. Now, sometimes those gifts are tough. Sometimes those gifts are not tender. Sometimes they are not delightful. Sometimes they are even downright hard. God puts, uh, gives us as gifts things that are difficult in our lives. That's not what we're talking about here. The fat is the best of the meat. The sweet wine is the best of the wine. Now, listen, I told you I grew up on a farm and ranch. We raised black Angus beef cattle. I would consider myself somewhat of a connoisseur of beefs. I like the beefs. I also like the porks. We didn't raise the pork, but I like the meat. I like all the meat. All the meat. I'm not, I, I might be a, a, maybe an amateur meat connoisseur. I'm not a sommelier. When it says drink the sweet wine, I'll drink the sangria. It's great. I'll just, it sounds great to me. Um, but I'm, I'm telling you that like th- these words are intended to help us to see that this is the best of the best. Like there are times, there are seasons when you are called to do this. This should not be your normal. He calls us here. Uh, he says, eat the fat, drink the sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. There's a call to generosity here in this. This is part of feasting. This call is, the, the call to generosity is pervasive. It's not just in this text. It, it extends to all quarters of life, but to be generous and, and particularly when basking in the abundant kindness of God and the delightful gifts that he's given us. Obedience looks like emulating the Father and sharing those gifts with those around us who do not have them. It is not for us to question whom God has given what he's given and, whom, and, and, uh, and what he's withheld. It is our responsibility to share uh, with generous hearts what God has given us. So, a little bit more specific instruction here. Feasting, like the Feast of Booze that they go on to celebrate here, is a distinct event. So this is not a command to make the best of the best your daily menu. I think... Good stewardship does not look like eating pulled pork and brisket every day, I think. Because the command to feast is because of the holy designation of the day. So there are days, there are times, even meals that are meant to be set apart. Ecclesiastes 3 reminds us that there are seasons that God has given us and those are gifts. Instruction number two is to take joy. So the first is this instruction, learn how to feast. Second is to take joy. 
Joy follows forgiveness. So first there's the reading of the law, then the welcoming of joy, uh, the joy, the welcoming joy of forgiveness and repentance. This, this, the text tells us here that the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord. So this, the, the source of this strength is joy that's of the Lord. It's not a manufactured joy. This is joy that finds, it's not a temporal joy. This is a, this is an, a durable, enduring joy that is not driven by emotion. This is a joy that finds its satisfaction not in immediate gratification, but rather in the glorious love of a father and king. This is what we are called to. Having been called by him, known by him, and loved by him, to commune with him, not just on earth, but for eternity. The same source, this same source of joy, uh, motivated Jesus, as we read in Hebrews 12, 2, when it says, For the joy that was set before him, Jesus, endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So if we are called to live as Jesus lived, he went, he went to the cross. He endured all of that shame. He endured, uh, he despised that shame. He endured all of that suffering for the joy set before him. It wasn't delight. He wasn't excited. He pleaded with the father to, to, to let there be some other way. And yet there was joy. There was joy set before him. That joy was the communion uh, with the Father and the communion with his people. This joy is authoritative um, in that it is God as the source. Again, this is not, uh, this is, this is not all the, the pursuits that our world and, and our culture encourages to making empty promises of delight and gluttonous consumption. This is not just do what feels right. Do what you want, right? Go and eat all the pulled pork every day. This is not that. This joy is a communion uh, with the, the creator of the universe. Take joy and let battle be joined. Uh, there's a really wonderful book. Uh, it's, a, um, it's a book of liturgies called Every Moment Holy. We read, uh, we read one of the liturgies in this book uh, often when we have a dinner together. And it's, uh, if you're familiar with this book, it's on page 119. It's called Feasting with Friends. We do this on the regular. But I wanted to share some of this with you uh, because it actually it gets right at the heart of what this call to joy is in this text. It begins, To gather joyfully is indeed a serious affair. For feasting in all enjoyments gratefully taken are, at their heart, acts of war. In celebrating this feast, we declare that evil and death, suffering and loss, sorrow and tears will not have the final word. Near the conclusion of this liturgy, we raise a glass and toast and continue with these words. Nothing good and right and true will be lost forever. Take joy, little flock. Take joy and let battle be joined. Nothing good and true and right will be lost forever. And we remember that by feasting. We join the battle for joy by feasting. 
So I encourage you, I implore you, all of us as a people of God, to join the, pa- the battle for joy, a true fight in our cultural moment. This is not easy. To take joy when sin is brought to light and when, by repentance and forgiveness, the glorious pardon of Jesus removes the crushing weight of sin, this should bring joy. And that doesn't come easy. There's effort. There's a battle involved. Instruction number three. Worship with joy by feasting. This is the feast and be reminded. So the instruction in feasting is feast to remember. Take joy. And then this one. uh, Worship with joy. Feast and be reminded. So we tend to glorify in our culture. We tend to glorify somberness, busyness, and even being heavily burdened. We've imported a a prevalent notion from our culture into our worship, one where we, supremely independent creatures, must apply a level of self-directed discipline commensurate with our sin in order to be pleasing to God. So many of us have had this sort of experience of, of communion even on a Sunday morning, and many Christians have been conditioned to think that such penance must be paid at the time in the worship service when communion happens. As though somehow through this formulaic ritual surrounded by a whole room of somber people and soft contrite music playing, that God's hand is somehow forced to rubber stamp us for another week. This is not the gospel. This is not what this table was ever intended for. Uh, I'm going to read you, this is a... I'm going to read you this quote. It's a little bit at length, uh, but I think it's, it's, worth, it's worth the price of admission. So this is Peter Lightheart in a book called Theopolitan Vision. Uh, we have, he's got a set of these Theopolitan books uh, in the back there. Um, so this comes from Theopolitan Vision. It's the white book, if you're wondering which one it is. But he says, it's true that many churches, including many Protestant churches, celebrate the Lord's Supper as if it were awake. And that's not quite right because wakes can be raucous affairs, but you get the idea. Many churches keep the Lord's Supper as if they were gathering at a tomb rather than a table. And that tomb is an empty one. So Paul's exhortation to self-examination from 1 Corinthians 11 becomes the dominant motif of the whole event. So we should take Paul with utter seriousness. We must come to the table worthily, and that means we have to engage in self-examination and repentance. But that self-examination doesn't take place at the table. The table is, well, a table. Bread is food, and wine is a festive drink. Nowhere in the Bible do people gather at a table to mourn their sins. If God wanted us to mourn our sins, he would have commanded us to a a weekly fast, not a feast. Tables are for eating, drinking, and rejoicing. In Israel, the sanctuary was a place of joy where Israel could eat, drink, and rejoice. When Israel gathered, they were to eat, drink, and rejoice. And if we celebrate the Lord's Supper as it ought to be celebrated, every Lord's Day will be a day of gladness, and every worship service will be a journey into joy. That's the end of the quote. So, rather than taking Paul's direction and making the preeminent characteristic of this event in our liturgy, think of it this way. It's like an invitation to a formal dinner. You're you're going to receive an invitation ahead of time. And for this particular one, uh, with this table, it happens every week. You're all invited. You know it. It shouldn't be a surprise. But you're uh, you're going to get this invitation, and you're going to contemplate ahead of time whether you're going to attend or not. 
You don't stand outside the door on the evening of the event or sit at the table and wait until all the guests are all seated at tables and the food is being served and, you, and sit there racking your brain on whether you should attend or not. That's not the time. So yes, ought we to do the work of self-examination to come worthily? Absolutely. When we are confessing sin and being reminded of our assurance of pardon, great. Um, but to recognize and repent of our sin and confess our sin with humble hearts, turning away from it and turning to Jesus as our holiness and hope, that's what we should do. And then what is the command? The command, friends, is to rejoice. It's to feast and be reminded. Let's pray and prepare for communion. God, um, your goodness and kindness to us uh, is both clear and compelling and overwhelming. God, you call us as as your people. You've restored us to yourself. And in that, uh, God, you've called us to, to gather around a table to feast God, to eat good food and to drink good drink and to be reminded. God, you, you, you call us to practice that in our day-to-day lives, um, that we mark celebrations with feasting and with joy. And then, God, in your kindness, you give us this gift week after week after week. Where we come before you, we confess. God, we're reminded and assured of our pardon of sin. God, out of your deep kindness, And then you invite us to the table to feast and to remember. So God, may this, uh, may this table, may this feast be that reminder for us today. God, may you be honored in it and glorified in Jesus name. Amen.